He told me to build a boat. Um, <laughs> how many of you guys saw the Bible miniseries on TV? Okay, I, it, was, it broke all kinds of records. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I didn't see any of it. By the way, I, I guess we have it in our, our, our bookstore. Our bookstores. I'll give a free tour of the entire bookstore if you want after the service. But uh, our, our bookshelf. But there is, I guess we have that at cost. If you haven't seen it, want to own it, whatever. I haven't yet seen it. But it's a giant phenomenon, the, 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 the series, the, the Bible. Um, there was, you know, I think I told you guys last week that it, it, it beat hockey in Canada. Uh, so just to give you a sense of how awesome it, it has been for people. Uh, over 100 million people have watched this, uh, this mini-series. And I, I found this, uh, this is from a couple months ago. This is from Entertainment Weekly on their website. Here's what they said about the, the Bible mini-series. Here's their first line. He is risen in the ratings. History's The Bible miniseries finale delivered the show's largest audience since its record-setting premiere. The network reports that 11.7 million viewers watched the two-hour conclusion on Easter Sunday, despite the Bible airing against heavy cable competition during its second hour. AMC's The Walking Dead has its season, had its season's finale, and HBO's Game of Thrones had its season premiere, both, with both geek titans setting records ratings. In fact, during the 9 p.m. hour when The Bible and Walking da- Dead ran head-to-head, the shows were basically tied with 12.3 million viewers. It's a strong performance for the religious miniseries that few expected to be a ratings competitor. Last night's conclusion of history's popular project depicted the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Since the show premiered last month, the miniseries has frequently managed to meet most broadcast shows, uh, beat, beat most broadcast shows on Sunday nights. So uh, Mark Burnett is uh, the producer. I, I was at a conference um, in which he was speaking, and he said, uh, you know, we were going to make this, this miniseries whether or not anybody bought it. We were going to do it, market it ourselves because we believed in it. And he said, what we re- our goal was to try to make the conversation about God not awkward, to, no- to normalize the conversation about God, that people could say in a coffee shop, hey, have you guys been watching that Bible miniseries? Because statistically, the, it, it, statistics are showing us that a large part of the audience who watched the, the Bible miniseries weren't Christians. That it wasn't just Christians watching it going, yes, I agree with that. It was like a lot of people going, is that for real? Is that, did that really happen? How did that, how did that actually work? And so what we thought we would do, based on the phenomenon of, of the Bible miniseries, we thought, you know, it might be a good idea for us to really explore this a little bit. That we would do a whole series about just the Bible. Now, <laughs> again, we've, we haven't really been all that clever with our titles. You know, the last series, if you were with us, we had eight weeks called, or nine weeks called Christian. And now we have The Bible. So, I mean, I, you know, people will ask you, hey, what do you guys talk about at your church? Well, uh, Christian stuff, the Bible. So it's like we're not real clever, I promise. Whatever we do in the fall, we'll have a much more clever title. But for now, we're really interested in just being clear rather than being cute. And so we're going to talk for a couple weeks about the Bible, which seems, seems sort of obvious. But we're going to talk specifically about it as we kind of watch through some of this series. But whether you grew up in the church or whether you're brand new investigating all this stuff about Jesus, maybe you heard about our last series, our Christian series, and really you had issues with what, it, what, it, what is the deal with all of these Christians and who is Jesus. Well, maybe this is a great opportunity for you to learn some stuff. And my guess is that a lot of us have grown up with some things, some, some um, sort of impressions about the Bible that ought to be righted or sort of redirected or maybe shaded a little bit because of how we grew up or whatever our, our own particular understanding might be. Um, in this series... Uh, I have to tell you, it's particularly today, because it's a series, we're going to start somewhere, and I won't be able to cover every single thing that you might want me to cover. We only have a few minutes to do this, and then we're going to have to let it go, and hopefully it prompts some discussion, some conversation as you go to brunch or whatever next week if you're here and you're having a burger at 10.30 or whatever, that you would be able to have a conversation about what this, this series is all about. 
But I just want to let you know right away, this is an 11-week series, 10 or 11-week series, which means I won't be able to wrap up everything that you might want in every single weekend. There's going to be a lot that it will take to kind of make that sort of make sense, all right? So before we jump into today, let's pray, and then uh, we will jump into today's, today's message. So let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we are, um, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you would, um, you would speak to us in the Bible. And Father, we have tons of questions about the Bible that we realize that there's not a single person in here who understands every single thing about the Bible and that every one of us looks at it and does our best to stay true to what it says and interpret it as we might. But Father, we pray that today, uh, amid all of whatever might be confusing or thought-provoking or challenging, that you would be revealed. That we would sense and know and feel your, your love for us. That you have created us and that you intend for us to walk with you and to walk in harmony with each other. Father, would you help us to sort out all of those kinds of things? And even right now, as we're just kind of, um, as we're just sitting, would you bring to mind those things in our own hearts which are causing us disharmony, disunity, unrest? Would we bring those before you that you might speak into them, that you might have power over them? Father, we ask that you would speak to us in the quiet and stillness. Jesus, it is in your name, the God of all creation, that we pray. Amen. Um, if you want to pull out your bulletin, there's, we're going to utilize that a little bit more than, than maybe usual. Um, but I also want to, you know, if you brought your Bible, we're going to be on the first page of the Bible, probably after the table of contents. Uh, we're going to be at Genesis 1, which is the very beginnings of all stuff. Uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, great. If you want to, however you want to follow along, great. But we're going to be there. And while you're doing that, I want to do this. We're going to talk a little bit. We start at the beginning of the Bible, so I feel like it's probably appropriate for us to talk about our own knowledge of the beginnings of things. And so what I want to do is this. This is a competition, and uh, you just, it's the personal pride kind of competition, and if you win, you can go tell the people at the coffee, you know, counter that you won, they'll give you a free coffee. Uh, so, uh, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to ask you a question. What I want you to tell me is, I'm going to give you the wrong year connected with whatever, whenever this thing started. And all I want you to do is you're voting on whether the actual year it began is before or after. Does that make sense? So I'm going to show something on the screen. It will say a year. You're voting on, no, 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 that, that thing actually happened before the year you gave me or it happened after the year. Does that make sense? Let's play. Here we go. First question. Facebook was created before or after 2003. How many say before? How many say after? Correct answer is after 2004. Okay, now, about only a third of you are playing. This, this really matters, Okay. So, but I want to see, let's have some, here we go. By the way, I do not have a Facebook. I just want to let you know, I've never had a Facebook, which is like, I'm like one of uh, like only a few billion people that don't have it, but I know there's like 800, there's like a billion people that do have it. I'm like one who doesn't. Actually, I started it for 30 seconds and shut it down because I was like, I'm, I'm bad enough at getting back to people. This is like, I, I need something else to have people get mad. Why I poked you? I did the thing. I'm like, I don't know. Forget it. So I don't have Facebook. Anyway, uh, here we go. Uh, the first Starbucks. Was open before or after 1986. How many say before? With pride, hold your hands up. How many say, no way, that's crazy. It has to be after. Well, you got a little more. Not this. Don't, don't flinch. Don't flinch. Go. Own it. Okay, the correct answer is before, 1971. Now, how many of you thought it knew it was that early? 
Some of you are a little too crazy about your Starbucks if you knew that. Here we go. I think, is it on their cups? Is it on their cups? Yeah, it is. Yeah, you pay too much attention to the cups. Okay, here we go. Rubik's Cube was created before or after 1980. How many say before 1980? How many say after? Children of the 80s, 1974. Ooh, I, I, I heard, and I don't know if this is true, that the guy who invented the Rubik's Cube is the first ever communist millionaire, like first millionaire from a communist country. I'm not sure. Research it. Research it on this. The iPhone was released before or after 2006. Who says before? First iPhone. Who says after? Correct answer is 2007 is after. Ooh, so close. How many of you got, how, who's got all of them right so far? Okay, you're still in the hunt for that coffee. Okay, here we go. Tom's shoes. You know Tom's, you buy a pair of shoes and they put a pair of shoes on a kid somewhere. Really cool, cool deal. Uh, it was founded before or after 2004. Who says before? A few of you. How many says after? Say after. Ooh, here we go. And the correct answer is? After, 2006. Oh, you were in the hunt, sir, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> no coffee for you. Here we go. Uh, this, uh, this next thing, here we go. The Nintendo Game Boy was released in the U.S. before or after 1990. Who says before 1990? Who says after? The correct answer is 1989. Ooh, very close. Who got all of them right? You did, really? Congratulations. You're really on top of really nerdy things. That's so good. Um, <laughs> All of these things we talked about, we just showed you, all those things represent significant beginnings. In fact, um, as we talk about them, we could talk about life before and after them. Like, these are things that revolutionize the way we think about coffee, the way we think about, you know, telephones, the way we think about the uh, social media, the way we think about, you know, whatever it might be, socially conscious buying of things, the way we think about personal gaming, all that kind of stuff has been shaped by those things. We could talk about time before them and talk about time after them. And in other words, these are significant events. And the Bible starts with its own beginning account. And I want us to start right there. The very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, here's what it says. In the beginning, God, let's stop right there. So all the way, we're off to a, we're off to a brilliant start. The first thing is this, you have to know, as we look at the Bible, as we talk about it, and I won't be able to cover everything and all the questions. I had great questions come up to me last night that I did not know how to answer, which is, you know, okay, it's a little bit humbling, but that's the truth. But I do want to tell you this. The Bible is predicated, it, it, is pre, it presupposes that the audience who would hear it already believes that there's God, that there is a God. The Bible isn't designed to prove to people who do not believe in God. It may do that, but it doesn't, it's not designed to prove to people who do not believe in God that there is a God. The Bible begins with a premise. In the beginning, God did something. Now, as we talk about the Bible, there's a couple things I want you to kind of keep in mind. One is this. While the Bible is intended for us to be able to read and understand, now it's a timeless, it's a timeless you know, scripture, we aren't the original audience. Now, my guess is there might be one or two of you in here who actually speak Hebrew and you know, can really read it in the original languages, but by and large, we do not speak Hebrew. We speak 21st century, um, the American Southern California version of English, right? which is a little bit different. Uh, I, I remember even, um, we were talking this week, we were, I was talking about how <laughs> we're kind of making fun of the way um, high school guys in particular just sort of completely truncate the English language, especially if you grew up in a beach culture. It is like, you know, the, the conversation, even, like this phrase, what is up, dude, just got shortened to, sorry, and we were like, wow, there's this, you, sorry, like that just became the entire conversation. That could be a whole what is up, dude. So, we know there's a way in which we speak that is different than the way in which people spoke and communicated ideas back when, this, when the Bible was written. 
Now, language and culture are necessarily connected. There are ways in which people talk and communicate that convey not only ideas, but also communicate culture. So, for instance, I, um, this week in our office we were talking, uh, uh, Hillary, who leads our junior high ministry, she has a deaf brother. And we were, so I'm always asking her questions about sign language and whatever else, and she goes, oh, well, let me, let me, she goes, it's so interesting because sign language is so expressive. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, if you ask a question with your eyebrows up, that is a yes or no question. If you ask it with your eyebrows down, not like a frown, but if you just ask them sort of down, that's an open-ended question. Meaning that the words could be exactly the same. Everyone in here could learn the, whatever the signs are for the same thing. But if we don't catch the subtlety, we're not asking the same question. The same thing's true with the Bible, particularly with, uh, across so many different you know, years and cultures. There's this Hebrew that's spoken with this subtlety that we don't understand because it's not our culture. The other thing is that the Bible has a context within itself. When it says something, it's connected in a passage, meaning it's difficult to just extract a single idea, take it out and make it mean something. You have to look at it in its own context, but there's also a cultural context. In other words, you have to understand what is meant by certain things for a particular culture. So imagine, for instance, you happen to be reading, and I don't know why you do this, but maybe, you, oh, here's what it is. Your neighbor's mail got accidentally delivered to your house, and you read on the cover of some uh, envelope, it said, national, international crisis warning, the zombies are invading. Now, you have to know whether or not from that alone, whether that's an actual warning, or whether there's a context, because you know that your neighbor is actually in the comic books, and the latest edition of some zombie magazine or comic book came out, and they're reading that. In other words, there's a context for that as well, and if you don't know it, we get the wrong meaning. In the beginning, God is where this story starts. The story of beginnings has God as its central focal point. And the people who would have understood, the first audience to have heard this stuff, would have already believed that God is and that presupposes that God is. And he is, throughout the entire Bible, going to be the hero of that story. He is the focal point at the beginning and it is under that umbrella that we read the rest of all of Scripture. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth is a way of saying both, both poles of creation. In other words, both, all of everything. It's a, it's a Hebrew expression for saying everything in between. Heavens and the earth represent extremes, and it, it means then that God created everything. All things in between. Heavens and the earth. Now, when we look at the word created, this is where we kind of begin to think about, this is where we talk about where stuff came from. And that's true. No doubt, if you ask anybody who the original audience, hey, where did all this, where did everything in the universe come from? None of them would say, I'm not sure. Well, science says that they would just say, well, God made everything. There would be no dispute. Everybody would say, well, God made everything. But what this does then is this. It raises the question. If it's presupposed that God made everything already, that they weren't preoccupied with, I wonder how everything came to be, where we would be concerned with about that, like 21st century us, we're like, well, how did everything get here? That's a really important question for us. For them, that's not the most important question. Because they know God already made everything. The question is, how is all that stuff put together? Now, for us, a lot of attention is put on how the material universe came into being. How did we start from nothing and get something? How did all that stuff happen? And it's a, tr- it's a truly worthy topic, but it's not one we're going to talk about today. I want us to focus on something slightly different than just where did everything come from and how did it get to be here. 
Because how the universe came to be wasn't the first issue, or wasn't the main issue with the first readers. We have to assume that what they're reading made sense to them in their own context, that it wasn't like God wrote something that they would never possibly understand in multiple lifetimes. He's speaking to them in language that they would have understood for their own particular understanding of all things. How the universe came to be wasn't the main issue for the first readers. The point is this. It's about the way in which God, whatever, what role does God have in the universe that is, his own universe? What role does he play? The the story of creation as we look at it is about the awe-inspiring majesty and sovereignty of God who dwells in his own universe that he created. Now it's easy to miss the point. It's easy to start saying, well, isn't this just really about how God made everything? Isn't that what this is about? Well, that is true, but that's not the point. In fact, we can lose ourselves chasing that down and miss what really, what really would have made sense to, the, to these first readers. My son, this past week, he got a, a new bike helmet because he lost his other one. So we, had to, we actually had this, you have to spend your own money on a bike helmet and go and buy one. It was this big conversation and all that kind of stuff. And he, we go, he goes to buy it and he picks out a helmet and he's just fascinated with the box of this thing. So he takes the helmet out of the box in the car and puts it in the car, and then he starts, he starts putting a box on his head. Look at me, I'm Robot Man, or whatever, and just kind of like, you know, and, he, and so he takes the box into the house. The next morning, he has to ride his bike to school, and we're like, where's your helmet? He's like, I don't know. Now he starts to panic because he's already had to pay for one helmet that he doesn't know where it went, and you can just see the like, oh my gosh, I've done it again. And my wife, Amanda, is like, you know, it, perhaps if you were focused a little bit more on the helmet than the box it came in, you might know where it is. I know. And so he goes and finds it in the car. Whatever. But I think we could get a little bit caught up in focusing on the box and miss the helmet if we don't. We try to focus too much attention today on where stuff came from as opposed to what's God doing with it. Because that's the way the, these first readers would have understood it. Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and empty. The, the phrase formless and empty, empty in Hebrew is tohu wawohu or tohu vavohu or tohu tohu. Babohu. All the V's and W's and B's are all kind of mixed up a little bit there. But you get the sense here. There's this, the word means total chaos. It means formless and void. It's the same phrase that's used to describe the barren and howling desert. In other words, that there's a nothingness, a frightening disorganization to all things. Another way to describe that phrase is the phrase lacking worth and purpose. Now, whatever God creates, Whatever he does is the opposite of frightening disorganization, the barrenness of the wasteland of the desert. It's going to be the opposite of lacking worth and purpose. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now notice, you can put that back on the screen. Notice that when, notice when we're talking about stuff already, If this was only about the material formation of stuff in the universe, before stuff is created, you have the Spirit of God hovering over waters. The Bible doesn't then tell you, well, there's a little asterisk here, and here's where the waters came from, here's how God made the waters before he's hovering over them. Which All this to say is this, that the principal concern here may not just be about where everything came from, it's about something else. If you've read the other translations, how the Spirit of God was brooding over the waters. In other words, this is the chaotic beginning to the way in which God will work. There's another something being described here, not just where everything came from. If I asked you about your computer, 
some of you in the room would talk about, oh, I have to tell you. I have to tell you about how the soldering on the motherboard is just so wonderful. I took my computer apart and saw all these things. You should see all of the different, you know, what I, transi- I don't know what is in there. It's not a transistor anymore. But you know what I'm talking about. There's all kinds of stuff in there. You've got to know. Now, most of us would just have a blank stare at you. Like, I don't know anything about the soldering of a motherboard and all that stuff. I just know what it does. I know that when I use my computer, it does things. I can listen to music. I can edit pictures. I can draw things. I can do pro... That's the kind of questions we would answer. And it's the same kind of questions that are being answered here about what God does in the universe. The people who are listening to this for the very first time, or the first audience, aren't, aren't looking for the how does the motherboard get soldered to the... They're looking at what does it do? What does God do? How does the universe work? How does it function? So we have this account then of the way in which the days of creation go. It's a very famous account. And I had to edit it down a little bit so that we, you can read it yourself. Trust me, you can take a look at it. But we've edited it down to just so it's a little bit quicker. But here's what we're going to look at. On the, you can look at it on the screen. I just wrote it on your, on your notes just as a like, you know, here's the bulk of the scripture. Here it is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 says this. This is day 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now what you'll notice in the first three days, you'll see is this separating or forming. This sort of creating of boundaries of things and the forming of things. But it's the separation of things from the other. So you see already the first day. And you have a couple patterns. And God said and God saw the evening and it was evening and then there was morning the first day this is a pattern you begin to see here day two i don't i didn't include it in all of in all of these though day two and god said there will let there be a vault between the waters to se- to separate water from water so god made the vault separated and separated the water under the vault from the water above it and it was so and god called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day here's what you have to know in the ancient cosmology which means the way the universe works the sky has a hard lid it's not an atmosphere it's not like a, it's not like you like going out. They don't have an They can't imagine going out into outer space. It's a hard lid, and above that lid is water. And God creates the sky, separating the water above from the water below. This is what's being described here. Day three, and God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let ground appear." You can see the separation of ground and water, the sea. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and He gathered the waters together, and He called them seas. Now, when we read this, we read these days as a sequence of events, which is what it is. But that's not, it's not entirely accurate. The way that the first readers would have understood this was that this is part of complementary pairs. That if you have a separation and a forming of something, it's necessary that there would then be something else because they know there are other things in creation that haven't yet been described. So day one has a complementary pair with the fourth day, which we're about to read. Day two has a complementary pair with the fifth day, and day three is a complementary pair with the sixth day. So you'll see then you have separation or forming, and then on these other days you have what would be called filling. So you can see on your, on your outlines there, we'll cover this in one second. So here's what, here's what's the day four. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. Day five. And God said that the water teem with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. You can see now you have the oceans being filled with fish and you have the the skies being filled with birds, forming, filling. Now you have the filling sort of part of things. Day six, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to his kind. And it was so. 
Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Can we throw the chart up on the screen? Can we go to the chart? Not that, the chart. There it is. Okay, that's what you have on your outline. Days one through three, these are forming or separating days. Days four through six are the filling days. Each of them has a pair. You have the symmetry of creation. In other words, you have light, then you have lights. These, these things are necessary. What people would have understood is there has to be a complementary pair in the way these are written. They wouldn't have just read it as a sequence of six days. They would have read it as one day, require, one day is going to require another day coming up soon as we're reading it that's going to complement it. The chaos into which creation comes, something lacking purpose, this frightening disorganization now has a symmetry. My, my kids like Legos. I tend to like them a little bit too much, too, as a dad who plays with them with my kids. But if you've ever seen a Lego package, it comes with a picture of the finished product. Usually they have it in some awesome background or something like that that you don't have. But they have this, this spaceship or a fire truck or whatever else, or a boat or whatever it might be. But when you open up the, the Legos and you pour out all the pieces, there's just this mess of pieces. And the question we ask when we see the Legos isn't, I wonder how those Legos are made. Where do, how do they get those little plastic molds together? How do they do that? The question we're asking is, can the person who received those Legos put everything together such that they make a whole shape, that they make something that it ought to go with? In fact, it's always amazing to me what my kids can put together in those Legos. It's complicated. And you watch them and you go, oh my gosh, look what you did. You're the person who took chaos and gave it order and purpose and function, wow, what was just a mess on the floor is now order. This is what God is doing into the chaos that exists. He's putting things into order. God's giving worth and purpose to all creation. So there's this pattern, day one and day four, day two and day five, day three and day six have this symmetry. And then you get to the seventh day and the pattern breaks. Here's what it says, Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because, he, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There's no longer a pair that goes with that. There's no, there's no forming or separating. There's no other anticipation of another day. Which means this. If there is no pair, there is no other thing that goes with it, it means that it is complete. It is whole. It is not broken. The Hebrew word describing something that is whole and unbroken and fully formed is the word shalom. Peace. Everything is as it should be. There's nothing missing and nothing broken. There's no more filling to be done of empty sp- It's all done. And now we have this, this kind of unique idea of what seven, the, the seventh day is. Most of us, if you grew up in the church, heard the story of creation. It was like, there is action for six days, and then God gets an iced tea and a lawn chair and sits down and lets the kids play in the front yard. Hey, kids, don't run on the ground, whatever it is. But like, there he is, relaxing. Like, kind of like, let's roll the credits. Here we go. That was great. Everybody relax and enjoy. If it's not, 
really what's being described. Let me back up a little bit. The number seven is clearly emphasized throughout all of the creation narrative. The first verse in Hebrew has seven words in it. The second, well, I should say this way, the, word, the phrase, it was so, is written seven times. And God saw is written seven times. Verse 2 of the creation narrative is 14 words. The word God is used 35 times. The word earth is used 21 times. Heaven is used 21 times. It's almost as if the writer had some help with this. It's as if the number seven is kind of special. And if we were to look at the creation narrative, knowing that there's this number seven repeated over and over again, it appears as though seven is actually not the lounge chair day where everything is kind of the end of all things. It's actually something else that maybe all of the creation narrative builds to the seventh day. That maybe we ought to pay attention to the way that it functions. The ancient Near East, the way that temples are dedicated is in a six-day process. In other words, the people are, there's, there's things that are established, stuff that's set up, and the sixth day usually is when you put the, the image of whatever God in the ancient Near East into the temple. And on the seventh day is when God inhabits the temple. The way that that in, in, like sort of inhabiting of the temple is described is the word rest. All of creation. What God establishes is his own temple. And on the seventh day, he resides in it. God has established for himself a temple. God occupies and rests in his temple. All creation, ordered from chaos, is that it might worship him. It's a temple for God. It becomes his temple once he rests in it, once he resides in it. A temple is not a temple until God rests in it. So many people are so concerned, and it's a good conversation, but we tend to get overly concerned with how the house is built of all of the universe that we lose the focus on God making his home in it. I used to take um, high school kids to Mexico. Some of you have done the, the, our house building that we have a partnership down in Mex Mexico. We build houses and stuff. And I used to take high school students to do this. And what they were always surprised by is this. So at the beginning of the, the week as we're building houses, they're putting stuff together and they're put, raising up the walls and they're putting on the roof and they're, they're hanging drywall and they're putting electrical wire. I mean, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're building lofts and ladders and they've created this really incredible living space. And their belief is that this is the best possible moment for this, for the, it's just making this house. And what they're always surprised by was this. We would lock the door, close the door, and then hand the keys to the owner. And then the owner would walk to the house, put the key in the lock, open the door, and walk in. And you would see their face going, now I get to make this house my home. I get to dwell in it with my family. And we're talking about creation. The first people who would have understood this would have said, this is about God making his home in creation. All of this creation, all of the universe is his temple and he rests in it, which gives us a sense of how everything in the world then ought to function. 
to worship God. Give you a sense of what it looks like when a, a, a temple is established. This is the Temple of Solomon. I, I'm, I put it on your notes. I kind of truncated it. I put a little bit on the screen, but you get the idea. I'll skip there a little bit. But here's, here's when the temple of God is dedicated by Solomon. It says this, The priest brought the ark of the Lord's covenant. This is the manifest presence of God. To its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. Skip down to verse 10. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, the, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled this temple. Once that moment happens, then it becomes the temple. Until then, it's a building decorated nicely. When God rests in the temple, that's when he makes it a temple, when he sits on the throne. For so many of us, we talk about rest, we imagine it being the opposite of activity. That's not what's actually being described. Rest is the opposite of unrest. God is sitting, not on a lawn chair, but on his throne. Ask anyone in the ancient Near East where God rests, and they'll tell you it's a temple. The understanding is that God is to be worshipped. God's intention for creation. He's to be worshipped as the one who put in order everything and gives, them, give all, gives all things purpose. All of creation's response is intended to be one of worship to him. Now I realize for some of you, you're like, wait a second, that sounds a little, is God kind of insecure? Is he kind of selfish? I don't know what his deal is, but why is he doing that kind of stuff? I don't know. I just know this is the way he ordered it. It's the right functioning of all things. David, years before, years before Solomon, dedicates the temple. As, uh, David's at the tent of meeting, which is the mobile temple. And he's addre- he, has the, he has the priests address the people. And they have this long, they're just shouting a list of praise as they're ministering to the people. He says, I want you guys to minister to the people. And they just go through this list of things about how great God is to the people. And the middle of it, here's what you get to. It's in 1 Chronicles 16. It says this. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Listen to this. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. All of creation. The sea and the trees and the, the, the forest, let them all sing to the Lord. Creation is intended to worship God. All things tend to work when they are oriented in their right place toward God. It means that our relationship with God is intact, and it also means that our relationships with each other begin to work in the harmony that was intended as well. One of the things I find, you know, um, it, throughout the different periods of my life, you know, maybe you're like me, you've been through counseling, you know, you've kind of had met with someone else who can kind of give you a little insight on your life. By the way, I should say, it, I'm more actually more concerned about you if you've never been to counseling than if you do, um, just to let you know. Like, can we, by the way, can we just, I told this at Rooted Group on, on Wednesday night, can we be a church that just loses the stigma of going to counseling, that we're just okay going to get help from people who might be able to help us speak a little better to each other? Can we just be okay with that? Everybody just nod, even if you disagree. Okay, good. Because um, right now, even right now, my wife and I, are, our, our marriage is great, but we're like, we're not talking exactly the same. I don't think we're speaking the same language, so we're going to some counseling. And uh, I was, um, I- I'm finding that in counseling, more often than not, that the source of the problems that I have, the reasons that we have conflict, is that I have wrongly found myself my own place in the universe. In other words, what I've done is I've made myself the most important thing above, above everything else. That I've bent the arc of all of what God intended around me. It's about me. It's all about me. 
And somehow I've lost my place. That the, the best and most ideal place for me to be in my life isn't where I'm God. It's where I recognize that I'm part of creation. And it's, in, it's a creation that I'm intended to worship God, not myself. That most of the problems I'm having in my own life, conflict and relationships, in so many other ways is because I'm really worshiping myself. We were created to worship. It is a part of our DNA. It is part of what we do. My son is a, um, he's a musician. He's nine years old, and he's a really talented drummer, and he can sing and all these kind of things that, you know, I have no idea. I, have, I do not have those gifts. And I'm, like, constantly amazed. And so we thought it would be good to take him to his first rock show. We took him to see, <laughs> took him to see the killers at, at the pond. And um, I'm not sure that was the best decision, but it was a decision we made. But um, we're up at, like, I mean, there's, we're five rows from the very top. And there's a song, some of you guys know the killers, but there's a song, you know, I forget the name of the song, but you know it. It's, um, you know, are we human or are we dancers? You know, you can tell it on the voice, right? And, and so the song goes, they, they repeat that question over and over again as part of the chorus. And everybody in the crowd has got their hands up and they're cheering and they're, ah, whatever, they're screaming and yelling. And the song, <laughs> the song ends. And of course, you know, are we human or are we dancer? And my, my son yells out top of his lungs, we're dancers! Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, he just, he was so caught up in it. Everybody's responding to the song and he yells out what he thinks you ought to yell out. Now I'm watching this crowd of people and nobody is telling them how to raise their hands. No one's telling them when to clap. The band's giving them just a little bit of some cues about when to sing and when not to, but not much. In fact, even when they stop, the whole audience carries on the melody themselves because they sort of know, they're sort of inclined to be a part of this kind of thing. You, us, all of us were intended and created to be worshiping beings, worshiping God. When we worship, what we're actually talking about is what has our attention, our focus, what has all of what, we pre- what we're preoccupied with, that's what we worship. And when we worship anything... That is not God who orders all things in all of the universe as his own temple. Then we reintroduce chaos and formlessness and frightening disorganization back into the world. What we don't, what I don't have on your outline, and this is something we just don't have time to talk about, is in the third chapter of Genesis, you you see things begin to unwind. That human beings created and intended for worship bend the ark of creation onto themselves, and they began to start thinking, we are as wise and can make decisions like God's. So we get to, we'll start worshiping ourselves. And you see chaos ensue. And the rest of the story of the Bible isn't God sitting up somewhere far away going, see, I told you guys what would happen. I was sitting in my lounge chair drinking my iced tea, and you guys decided to go and, you know, vandalize the neighborhood. I knew that was going to happen. It's not what actually... The story of the Bible, this is why we start here, is God who created all things, intended them, all things to worship him, seeking out those people who have introduced chaos into the world and bringing them back to him. So often we talk about God, we talk about the Bible as man's search for God, but the story of the Bible really is God in search of man. God coming to reclaim that which was what he intended, to bring it back home. To make all things right and harmonious and whole again. That's the arc of the Bible. 
You're going to see that over the course of the next 11 weeks. In fact, as you look even a little bit further ahead, you can see even how we're described as people who belong to Jesus. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. In him, the whole building, in him meaning Jesus, and the whole building talking about all the people who belong to Jesus. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, God's intention to dwell in the universe is also so very specific as to his intention is to dwell within you through Jesus. That's his intention. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a a look at what exactly that looks like. But the story over and over again in the Bible though it often gets confusing, is that this is God's search for man. Let me do this. Would you close your eyes just a moment? I'll give you some stuff to think about as we begin this series. For some of you, the notion of worshiping God is a pretty challenging one. Maybe you've been wounded in your past. Maybe there have been... um, Feelings where God was supposed to show up and you thought for sure he was going to do something and he didn't. For others of us, the idea of worship is just kind of absurd. For some of us, we know worship, we've identified it. And maybe for us, part of what we're wrestling with is that the focus of our worship is our own desires. And that we've seen chaos introduced into our own lives and our own families because we've made us the object of our worship. Jesus says, we come before you. We acknowledge that you placed all things into the world as they ought to be, that they are intended and oriented and function toward you as things that would worship you. Father, we take that seriously and recognize that as we look over the whole scope of the Bible, it is constantly pointing back to you. Father, would you minister to us, those of us who feel like we've introduced so much chaos that we can never be reintroduced to you, that we can never find our way back to you. God, would you allow us the comfort of your Holy Spirit, which says, I want you back. No matter how far you've run away, I want you to walk with me. Maybe as we respond in a moment with our singing, so your eyes still closed. Maybe some of you need to come forward and receive prayer. That maybe there's a part of you that says, I've been so self-focused that I've been creating chaos and I, wanna, I, want, I need God to intervene. Some of you may need to pray that someone might come alongside you because someone else has introduced chaos that has affected you and damaged you. So as we respond in prayer, as we respond in singing, which is our collective prayer set to music, this be a place where healing and hope can be made real, and we can reorient ourselves to the Creator. So, Father, it's in your name that we pray and that we gather and respond to you. Amen.